Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. You got a Bible? Uh, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 27 with a Sermon on the Mount. Uh, when you see the text, uh, you'll understand uh, that we're just going to jump in this morning. Uh, you probably don't uh, have any need for me uh, to try to create any extra tension or tell a funny story uh, to capture your attention. I think Jesus does that sufficiently today. So let's just jump right in. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. This is, remember the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is preaching, here's what he says. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now we have seen this pattern before, a couple weeks ago when we looked at the passage on anger. So Jesus continues to follow the same pattern where he says, you have heard it said, followed by, but I say to you. And much like the previous paragraph, Jesus quotes from the Ten Commandments, from the Seventh Commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Uh, And then he quickly turns our attention away from the external behavioral obedience to the commandment to our hearts, to the thoughts and desires at the very center of who we are. Now, Jesus is not saying that our actions are unimportant. Of course, our actions are important. Our behavior is important. Not committing adultery is a good thing. But he is diving into the fact that God cares about our hearts as well. He cares about what we think about, what we ponder, what we desire, the very center of who we are. And Jesus' point, even in these first couple of verses, is our hearts can be corrupted with lust, even if we avoid sleeping with someone who's not our spouse. That at the heart of who we are, We can have corruption, even if our actions don't necessarily show that. We might not think that this is a huge deal, uh, just having lust in our hearts, but check out what Jesus says next in verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Uh, For it is better uh, that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Jesus gives what should be our response to lust in our hearts. He says it's an extreme response. Just like if you remember a couple weeks ago when we looked at anger, Jesus said not being angry and being reconciled with someone is so important that you should go to the extreme length of walking away from offering a sacrifice at the altar so that you could then be reconciled with someone. Likewise, and in an even more extreme fashion, Jesus says here, you should tear your eye out if it causes you to sin. You should cut your hand off if it causes you to sin. That lust in our minds and hearts is such a big deal to Jesus that he recommends we go to extreme lengths to eliminate. And Jesus isn't done saying extreme things. Check out verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now it's the same pattern. You have heard it said, but I say to you. 
But this time, Jesus isn't quoting from one of the Ten Commandments. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 24. Now, if we were to dive into Deuteronomy chapter 24, here's what you would see. The Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 3, have a law, are laws intended to protect women from being divorced for frivolous reasons and to protect them from being taken advantage of by a former husband. And so what that law requires a man to do if he's going to divorce his wife is give her a certificate of divorce and then prohibits him from remarrying her later. And the reason would be this, is if she gets married, he, she gets a dowry. If she's divorced for some reason, he gets to keep it. So then he could come back later and marry her again and what? Get more money. So it's intended as protection. But in the first century, instead of being a law used to protect women from being taken advantage of, it's now being used by religious teachers to justify all sorts of reasons for divorce. You could divorce a woman for any sort of reason, just give her their certificate. You know what I mean? Like as long as you got her certificate, we're all golden, we're all good. And Jesus then again says something incredibly extreme. Hey, that's not the right interpretation of that law. And in fact, let me remind you, he goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. The marriage is between one man and one woman for a lifetime. And then says, if you divorce and remarry, he says that's adultery. It's pretty extreme. Now, let's back up with all of this information and remember what the Sermon on the Mount is. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus giving us a blueprint for being fully human. And so it is describing what it means to live the human life the way that God designed people to live the human life. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but blueprints go much deeper than just the external elevation, right? Blueprints go into the plumbing, electrical systems, and where walls go, and all sorts of things. And so likewise, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is getting past the external and go, hey, if we really look, here's what it means to be human. And to be fully human is more than just avoiding certain sins like adultery. Instead, he wants us to see the heart of the commandments, what God commands. Not just prohibitions, but it's about who we are. What we see in this text is God's purpose for people is conformity of heart, not just conformity of outward actions. That God requires faithfulness. From all people in our thoughts, desires, words, commitments, and actions. Not just doing the right thing, but loving rightly. Not just doing the right thing, but thinking rightly. Not just doing the right thing, but desiring rightly. Not just doing the right thing, but speaking rightly. <clears throat> and that our heart's intentions towards other image bearers is especially important. And so he gives us these two examples. Lust. Lust is the twisting of three very good gifts from God. Sometimes we forget it because of the way that we talk about sex and the way that we see sex on the screen around us and everywhere that we go. But sex is, you remember, before the fall. So before sin entered the world, God gave sex to his people as a good gift. And lust is a twisting of that good gift. Also, lust is a twisting of our imaginations. Imagination is a good gift from God. It's part of what makes us people. And it's to take that imagination, a gift from God, and to twist it. And then ultimately, lust is a twisting of other people. 
that God created us to live in community with others. And instead, in lust, we're taking advantage of others, not seeking to be a blessing to them. It is at its heart using other people for our own selfish gain. It violates God's blueprint for being truly human. In other words, what Jesus is saying is this is not what it means to be a person. To be a person isn't to use other people for your own gain, but to be a person is to live in faithfulness and purity with the people around you and in your own heart. Divorce is very similar. Our, heart, our heart's intentions towards our spouse is important. And so divorce, Jesus is pointing out, especially when it is for tr trivial or frivolous reasons, is an exaltation of our own wants and desires over our commitments to others, over what is good for the other person. And so just like he's saying, hey, at the very heart, lust is wrong and is similar to the act of adultery. He's saying at the very heart, frivolously dismissing someone in a relationship, a marriage relationship, is wrong. It indicates something about our hearts. And so with these two passages together, we can see this very big idea. Very big idea. Citizens of God's kingdom treat sex and marriage as sacred commitments, not insignificant commodities. Citizens of God's kingdom. Sermon on the Mount, teaching us how to be fully human or how to live as citizens of God's kingdom. Citizens of God's kingdom treat sex and marriage as sacred commitments, not insignificant commodities. What's a commodity? Well, a commodity is any good that is bought and sold because of its usefulness, right? And so uh, I go to Quick Trip and I buy some gasoline, right? Fill up my gas tank with gasoline. I get in the car and I drive it and I burn that gasoline so I could drive around town and go wherever I want and get some lunch and do life. It's a commodity. I go to Kroger. What am I doing at Kroger? I'm buying commodities. And so every Friday night, the Nichols family is family, uh, family movie night and we do frozen pizza. Uh, you, know, you know, I mean... Pizza's getting expensive, right? <laughs> frozen pizza. So I go to Kroger, I buy frozen pizzas, I put them in the oven at 400 degrees, 18 minutes later they come out crisp and nice, we cut it up and we eat it so that my family has pizza on a movie night. That is a commodity. And we often treat people as commodities, as insignificant or trivial as goods to be consumed at our own pleasure. And so lust treats people as a good that is to be consumed. The woman at line at Kroger when you're buying your frozen pizza becomes just a commodity. Or the screen late at night simply becomes a tool of my own amusement. People become a means to an end and less than human to us. Divorce is treating marriage as trivial. It's seeing the other person only in terms of my own benefit. They are not pretty enough, not sexually interested in me enough, not wealthy enough, not caring enough. And that becomes grounds to dismiss myself from that relationship. Instead, we should see sex and marriage both as good gifts from God, both coming before the fall, before sin and death 
entered our world. And we should see the people in those relationships as sacred. That all people were created by God in his image with intrinsic worth and value. And it is a deep violation of God's world when we treat people as objects to fuel our lusts or nuances to justify our divorces. Now, that's the big picture, and I'm sure you have some questions because there's some crazy stuff in here. The first question maybe you're asking is this, like, hey, can we go back to that pluck my eye out thing? Does Jesus really want me to pluck my eye out? Well, Origen of Alexandria in the fourth century thought so, and he took this so seriously that he made himself a eunuch. And he told his church the next week and everyone left. I'm just kidding. That's not true. I made that up. It actually was a topic at a council several years later where they said, please stop cutting off body parts. We're not for that anymore. But let's think about this, right? Does not having a right eye actually prevent lustful thoughts in any of us? You still got the left one and you still have a brain, right? Does not having your right hand prevent any sort of lustful thoughts? No. I don't think Jesus is saying here, this is the means to get rid of lust at the heart of who you are, because he doesn't even mention the heart, right? Instead, what Jesus is saying is the same thing N.T. Wright says, deal ruthlessly with the first signs of lust. That we shouldn't pamper it or flirt with it, but we should put it to death as quickly as possible. Why? Why does lust then demand such a strong response? Well, on top of the fact that it makes us less than human and degrades others, and it's not living according to God's blueprint, and it corrupts the heart of who we are. Jesus repeats, do you see what he repeats twice in 29 and 30? The same phrase. For it is better you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. So not only does lust corrupt us at the very core of who we are, but it puts us in danger of eternal punishment in hell. And just like we saw a couple of weeks ago that our anger can consume us, so can our lustful passions. And Jesus is being incredibly straightforward here. He's saying deal with lust in your heart because it can send you to hell. Oogling looks, late nights looking at porn, Imagination fantasies from trashy romance novels can all send us to hell. You're like, that's pretty strong. Yet, that's what Jesus said. And so this is something in our lives we should take seriously. And so if we're going to deal ruthlessly with our sins, how do we do that? Well, citizens of God's kingdom see sin as an enemy to be put to death. The church leaders and theologians of old would call this the mortification of our sins. That we are killing the things that entrap us. Paul talks about this, picking up on exactly what Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount, Colossians chapter 3. Verse 5, he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And then in verse 12, he says, if we put some things to death, then we have to put on some things. Put on then, he says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved 
compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And so the way that we do what Jesus is instructing here, the way that we do what Paul is instructing here, is we put on some things and we put off some things. We kill some things and then we breathe life into some things. And how do we do that? How do we put something to death? So three real practical, quick things. You might want to write these down. That if we are to deal ruthlessly with our sin, especially the sin of lusts, these are three things that we can do. First, we can examine our own hearts. You ever been lied to? It's infuriating, right? But most of us lie to ourselves more than anybody else lies to us. Most of us excuse our actions, justify our behavior, and very rarely get very honest with who we are. And so if you want to put to death the sin that's in your heart and life, the first thing that it requires is honesty. This is the reality of who I am and where I am. This is true of me. Secondly, it requires reframing our sin. We have to ask the question, what is it really? Is it really as little as I think it is, or is it really what Jesus says that it is? Is lust in my heart really not a big deal, or is lust in my heart actually corrupting me just like the external behavior of adultery? Is this sexual immorality, or is this a slip-up, or is this a, well, you know, just one thing led to another? And we have to reframe our sin, see it for what it actually is. Ask the question, how does this affect my relationship with God? How does this affect my relationship with others? What does this say that I actually believe about other people? See it for what it is. And then thirdly, to put sin to death in us, we have to starve our sin. Stop feeding it. Stop justifying it. We have to starve. So for some of us, and I want to be very careful here, all right? I'm not trying to go like 1997 youth group on you, all right? We're going to go out and burn every like objectionable thing that we have. You know, we don't have CDs anymore. It's hard to burn a fire Spotify playlist or whatever, right? But I do want to suggest that if you struggle with lust, perhaps surrounding yourself with things that inflame it is not smart. And so it is good to consider, how could I starve this? How could I not feed this? But even more than what we take away is what we put on, what we breathe life into. So there's three quick things to put on, three quick things, practices to bring new life. This is the, really the most important step. First is we ask the Holy Spirit for help. Uh, prayer is a necessary weapon. We have to admit our draw to sin, be honest, and ask, God, could you help me with this? This thing has been whipping my tail for years. Could you help? Secondly, just like we reframed our sin, we need to remind ourselves of our identity in Christ. You notice that's what Paul does, put on then as what? God's chosen ones. One of the most effective strategies you have at battling sin in your heart is realizing who you are and who you belong to. The power of saying, man, God chose me 
God saved me. God brought me into his family. Jesus has forgiven me. Jesus has freed me from the power of sin in my life. That is powerful truths. So we have to be willing to preach the gospel to ourselves, remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. Uh, and then thirdly, we have to ask other believers for help. We've got to be honest enough to tell other people about what we're struggling with, ask other people to pray for us, give other people the ability to encourage us. You know what the truth about most of this stuff is most of this happens before you even get in the moment. That's why belonging to a community like a missional community is so important. Because you have people encouraging you to follow Jesus, even if they don't even know what you're struggling with. I think these are the things that Jesus is talking about in the text. So don't run out and start cutting off body parts. But do run out. Start praying for the Holy Spirit's help. Start starving sin in your life. Putting to death some things and putting on some things. Second question maybe you're asking is this. Uh, when is it okay to divorce someone? Uh, this is a much bigger question than I could answer in our time together. You're like, great, lunch is coming soon. There's a lot of other texts to consider, including other teachings of Jesus on this subject. I did address this in detail, February 2022. You can go look up the message if you want to dive in more. We talked about it from Mark chapter 10. But I can say to answer this question quickly today is divorce is acceptable when egregious covenant breaking is happening. So Jesus gives the exception here of sexual morality. Other places we see Paul give an exception around abandonment. There is abuse happening. There's obviously an egregious covenant breaking of a marriage relationship. And in asking this question, we need to be careful because we, quit, we kind of make ourselves guilty of the same thing that Jesus is teaching against. The key here, the key here, Jesus is talking to people who are trying to justify divorce trivially, right? He is not looking at someone who's been cheated on, right? And saying, hey, what's, what's wrong with your heart, right? That's not what he's doing. He's asking the person who wants to dismiss their wife for no reason to consider their heart. And so we, though, could fall into the same trap by trying to answer every dot and tittle involved in this. We could miss the point. The, the point isn't to find all the ways that you could justify divorce rightly. The point is to examine yourself. And we could find ourselves guilty of the same thing, trying to justify our own, our, our own, our own actions instead of being honest about the condition of our hearts. We, like the people of Jesus, Tom, want to split hairs over this issue. What does sexual morality include? What, da, 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 da. what are your excuses? What, when can I do this? But even when we have to recognize, even when divorce might be an acceptable course of action, it is always the result of sin. And we should always think of it as a tragedy. We should never pr uh, pr approach, it, approach it with self-justification, trying to prove ourselves in the right. Instead, we should continually come back to Jesus. Say, man, I've fallen short and I need Christ. Maybe some of you are asking the question, what if I am divorced? Divorce, like every other sin, can't be put back in the box. Right? What's done is done. And so the key question for those of us who have experienced divorce from this moment forward, even if you've never considered it, is what does repentance look like from here? 
Is there something I need to do to make things right with my former spouse? How do I live differently in my current marriage in light of the obedience that God has called me to? Remember, the point of the Sermon on the Mount isn't for us to look at Jesus' commandments and say, oh yeah, I'm good. I'm fine. The point is, going all the way back to the very first line, for us to see our own poverty of spirit, our own spiritual bankruptcy, to be honest with ourselves. And so citizens of God's kingdom are people of repentance and faith. I love Luther says this, when the Lord Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. So how do you handle lust in your heart? How do you handle divorce in your past? It's Jesus' call to repent, to turn from our sin and to trust Christ anew. I love J.I. Packer's definition of repentance. Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as our knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. And so for some of us today, what we know of ourselves is that we look at a ton of pornography. We know that. And we know that that, according to Jesus, falls short of God's standards of our lives. And so that is repentance. What you might not know, because you haven't gotten past that, is all the other subtle ways that lust creeps into your heart. And so as you grow past, by the grace of God, that addiction in this area of your life, what you find is more repentance is needed, if not less. Because you see all the other little subtle ways that aren't so clearly on the surface. Which is why when we start following Jesus, many of us start being overwhelmed. Because the more and more we see ourselves rightly, the more and more there is to repent of or to turn from. So repentance is turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of God. But not just repentance. Repentance involves faith. We've talked about this, I believe, at every juncture of the Sermon on the Mount. Because one of the keys to understanding the Sermon on the Mount is remembering who is teaching it. Jesus. And so the reality is the Sermon on the Mount in one way or another exposes us all. It shows the reality of our hearts to all of it. It lays us all bare. If lust isn't your thing, I promise he's going to get to your thing. And the reason that Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount in this way to expose us all to the depths of the sin in our hearts is because Jesus is the one who at the end of Matthew's gospel is going to lay down his life for us in our place. Jesus doesn't just demand change from you. Jesus sacrificed his life for you because of your sin. Jesus doesn't just ask you to repent. Jesus provides you with the means to do it. So the beauty of the Sermon on the Mount The thing that we all rejoice in, our great hope as believers today, is not in our own ability to obey this. 
Our great hope is that Jesus obeyed it for us in our place. That Jesus died for our sins for us in our place. And Jesus sent the Holy Spirit into our lives to equip us and to help us walk as citizens of God's kingdom. The beauty is that these aren't requirements to get into the kingdom. The requirement to get into the kingdom is faith in Christ, to trust in Jesus. And then God patiently, with kindness and joy, slowly over time, walks with his people who are citizens of his kingdom so that our hearts can form more and more to look like Jesus. So there's good news today. Good news. If you were overwhelmed by the stark reality of the sin in your heart, if you have treated people like a commodity, Marriage is insignificant and lust is trivial. There is a way for you. There is a way for you to be made whole and there is a way for you to be forgiven. And that is through Jesus, the son of God. So today, if you've never come to faith in Christ, you do not have to be overwhelmed by your sin. You don't have to be saddled with guilt and shame. And you can come to Christ today. And then for those of us who are believers in Jesus already, the good news today is that whenever we fall short, Jesus is making up the difference for us. The way out of this is to fill our hearts with all what Jesus has done for us. The way out of our sin and shame is to trust Jesus anew daily, to walk, as Luther said, in repentance, that our whole lives would look like repentance. So we're we're not perfect people here. You know that, right? I'm not perfect. Many of you know that all too well. What we should be is repentant. Constantly, constantly daily turning from sin and turning to trust Christ anew. Does that make sense today? Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.